electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, the Nasdaq tries to rally on this final trading day of the quarter, but Apple is not participating despite the move higher. Nasdaq's now back to levels we saw in June. The belt tightening for big tech, Meta freezing hiring, Zuckerberg telling employees at this all-hands meeting that the company's cutting budgets across most teams, which will lead to layoffs. And Google planning to shut down gaming service Stadia. That's part of CEO Sundar Pichai's goal to make the company 20% more efficient. And Micron, of course, planning to cut investments by 30%. Here's Marotra earlier this morning on Squawk on the Street. We are taking actions, too, that are very rapid in terms of cutting our capex, cutting our supply growth for the year. John, we talked about this yesterday. I'm not sure we expected the commentary to be so negative across all of their end markets. Yeah, I'm not entirely surprised. And, uh, you know, I I said yesterday that I was actually going to be paying close attention to Nike. And while their numbers for the quarter weren't bad, their inventories were bad, right? And this is the scenario that we've been talking about for weeks here, where it started with Target and Walmart, right? You had inventories uh, of, of consumer goods sort of at the low end that were sitting there that were being inflation impact. And the question was, would this go through to the middle class consumer, even to the enterprise? And actually, we're starting to see exactly that. What Nike uh, tells us, um, what uh, CarMax told us this week. And what we get a hint of, uh, even from Micron, is that when it comes to laptops, when it comes to cars, when it comes to uh, some some pretty expensive clothing, consumers, not buy, the demand really isn't there, but the supply is. And the question, D, I think, is what happens now as we're entering Q4 after today? If consumer demand continues to weaken across all of these things, if enterprise demand keeps uh, staying iffy with deals getting pushed out, what sort of a position does that put us in come January, February? This is uncomfortable, but it could get worse. It could get worse. I think that's what everyone's trying to figure out. I mean, big tech lost, what, $260 billion in the last 24 hours. That's between Apple, Alphabet, Amazon, Tesla, Microsoft, Meta. These big names we're always talking about. In the case of Micron, though, it's key that this is a stock that's up 3-plus percent today on what was not a good quarter, not a good outlook, but perhaps investors thinking that this is maybe the trough, so it's time to go in here, 2.9%. Carl, it was interesting that Sanjay Marocha said that, you know, things would be getting better in 2023. Um, I know you guys pressed him on what led him to believe that. He said maybe the opening up in China, but a CEO that's willing to come out there in this kind of environment that is so uncertain, say, that, you know, he could see things getting up, that's something that we haven't really heard in a while. Yep. Uh, you got to give him credit. He comes on uh, every quarter, uh, no matter what the, the macro or micro picture is. Guys, a little bit more on uh, Meta this morning, a somewhat resilient stock in this environment, despite the news of those hiring freezes. Joining us today, Mark Asset Management founder and managing partner, Morris Mark. Morris, it is great to have you. 
Happy Friday, happy end of Q3. I wonder, when you look at Meta and Google trying to get more efficient and all the hunkered down memos we've read and now uh, Micron and CapEx, is this the environment where you start shopping? Well, we're disciplined. We, we're trying to protect our ability to invest. We were cautious all year. We raised cash. We have not on a net basis employed the cash. We have repositioned. We have added to certain investments. Uh, we think there's a lot of attractive value among the high quality businesses. And that's our, our strategy is to own great businesses over the longer term. We've been investing in Apple since 2006. We've been investing in Amazon since 2014, really since 2008. We've been invested in Google since 2010, excuse me, Alphabet. All right, so I think that gives you some idea of how we look at things. Right, and, and the, the notion that somehow these companies uh, got used to this pull forward in demand, scaled up, and now uh, there's a little bit of slack in that rope, that doesn't concern you? No, I like the idea of businesses running their businesses. Uh, our own attitude is we want our own people to be productive and people that aren't productive aren't going to be here. And uh, we like our people. So I think, uh, I think that's what they're doing. And I think that's a lot of them overexpanded in certain areas. I think their core businesses are sound. And uh, one of the things that we remember from the financial crisis of 2008 is that owning the companies that could come through that with strong financial positions and great business models ultimately proved to be very rewarding. Right, but Morris, you said that on a net basis, you have not deployed all the cash that you have raised. What are you waiting for? Uh, I'm waiting for a better framework. That's the best way to put it. I think the framework is very clouded. Uh, I don't think you worry so much. I worry about the human cost of recession. That's a horrible thing. You don't want anybody to lose their job. You don't want anybody to suffer. But I think from an investment point of view, what you want to see is a perspective where good companies can grow their business and where the opportunities are there. And we have a world that's far more clouded today than it ever has been for the last, uh, I would say, 25 years. Morris, uh, when does that clarity come? Does it come during Q4 or does it come perhaps as a result of Q4? And then what are the themes that you think are going to be most important coming out of this period as you start to deploy that cash? Just because something won over the last couple years doesn't mean it's going to win when we emerge from this period. Absolutely. I think you want smart management. You want great business models. You want great long-term opportunity. Uh, and you want people who can take advantage of it. I think that's what we're looking for. Uh, on a net basis, we added Recently, to two of our investments, we added to Amazon. I really like uh, the, uh, the new CEO. I like his attitude, which is very pragmatic. I think they're going to maximize the use of their assets. I think the idea of using prime services as a, as a generator of business to other businesses, I think uh, Amazon's de-emphasizing its own private product sales and trying to do more for other companies, and I like that. Uh, I think they built Amazon Web Services. You may have a cyclical slowdown there, but that's a great business with a great long-term opportunity. And we added to our Disney position, and we think Disney is truly a cheap stock. You cannot reproduce what they have at anything close to the current price of the stock. Yeah, I was looking at that. Um, 
I saw uh, B of A trim their target, still 127 today. But Morris, you know, Bob Iger the other day spoke about the cable and the cable satellite business uh, being terminally ill. He said the theme parks are hugely profitable, but in a period of waning consumer demand, how much of that uh, life jacket is, is will still float? I think a lot of it will float. I think you do have to worry about cyclical risk. The better the balance sheet, the better the business model, uh, I think the less you worry about things like that and the more you can worry or think about long-term opportunity. I think the emergence of the Disney streaming channels is taking advantage of technology for a new way to entertain people. And I think that the eventual uh, introduction of advertising-driven services to reduce the cash cost to the customer, if that's what they want, uh, just will add additional growth opportunities. Uh, I think the parks are an integral part of Disney. Disney's in the entertainment business, and they're the, one of the few companies that can monetize their product through means that most people wouldn't think of. You go to the park because you want to see the Star Wars attraction. You go to the park because there'll be Marvel attractions. Marvel is an unbelievable franchise. It's just no, absolutely nothing like it. You go to the park to see the princesses. And you go to the parks to play golf. And there's an ESPN uh, thing at Disney World, too. I think that's going to fit. So I just think the opportunities there long-term are enormous. It has a financial capacity. It's going to be making money. And the long-term earnings potential is enormous. Yeah, we, we, could spend, we could spend the whole segment just on Disney, uh, Morris. But those are a bunch of really actionable and smart ideas. Uh, thanks so much. Great to see you. Have a good weekend. Thanks. You're welcome, Carl. Be well. Morris Mark. I want to give the market a mention. The Dow is up just over 100 points at the moment. The S&P up a fraction of a percent. The Nasdaq doing best of all up one and a quarter percent. We'll see if that holds. Meanwhile, our next guest says it is judgment day for cash bleeders. Turning his eye toward mobility names like Uber, Lyft and DoorDash, as well as fintech firms, including Coinbase and Robinhood. All those names are up today. As a matter of fact, Coinbase is up nearly 9%, uh, as is Asana, MongoDB, up almost 8%. But the names I mentioned anyway, the mobility names, have lost a third to three quarters of their market value year to date. Joining us now, Margins Editor Ranjan Roy. Um, Ranjan, happy Friday. I, is it so much a matter of bleeding cash, or is it a matter of whose model is working and whose isn't? Because... Uh, some of these, on an operating basis, are doing pretty well. DoorDash is a grower, operationally. Yeah, I mean, these companies have been growing, but we are at that moment that these companies that have bled cash over their entire lifetimes, the ones that exemplify that high-growth cash-bleeding model, investors are going to pay real attention. Because if you look at the end of Q2 to Q3, June to the 30th to today, things are actually kind of flat up a bit. Remember, you know, mid-July to mid-September, everything looked okay. We were getting positive surprises on the earnings side, but then the September 13th CPI print hit, and then all hell broke loose. And, and I think for these companies, to me, the most important business statement that was made was in May when Dara Khosr Shahi said they're going to go hardcore on expenses and costs. And they did. They generated $382 million in cash, and their fundamentals look okay. But then since then, you've seen every VC, every CEO, 
talking about lowering your burn rate, generating more cash. I mean, you're hearing about the pivot to profitability more than pickleball right now. Everyone is talking about it. Now, the only thing is who's going to actually deliver. And I think investors have been giving a lifeline and a leash to these companies for a decade. Now they're going to demand Powell and the Fed have said, we're not, we're okay tolerating market pain. Who is actually going to be able to show cash flow and positivity? There's going to be a much, much more focus on that in the coming quarter. Agreed, agreed. And maybe, but there's lots of different ways of measuring profitability. And I think maybe investors, particularly retail investors, maybe haven't been as disciplined about that in the past as they could be now. Just because something isn't profitable by some measures, if it's growing quickly, if its model's working, if cash flows are good, then that, that's different than something else, right? There's a difference between Uber and Lyft, between Lyft and DoorDash. Yeah, no, I do think the next quarter we're going to start really picking the winners and the losers. And again, Uber's fundamentals actually looked good. Gross bookings were up 33%. Revenue was up 30%. They have more drivers on the platform than even in the pre-pandemic. But this is a company that's still forecasted to lose $7 billion this year. They've lost $31 billion in their lifetime. So I think investors are really going to focus on who actually has a sustainable business model. And one quarter of positive cash flow does not make for a sustainable business model. They showed that they can cut expenses pretty rapidly, but that does not mean that this is necessarily going to work on an ongoing basis. Hey, Ron, John, I wonder if you could argue, though, that Judgment Day already came and went for the likes of Uber and Lyft, um, and it was their IPOs. Uber went public at $45 a share, Lyft at $72 a share. They are way, way below that. Investors seem to have already made up their minds that these are not tech companies. They're not valuing them as such. Um, they're not even valued as growth companies. So are they looking at profitability when actually they should be looking at innovation because a company like Uber has actually sold off some of the most interesting, innovative parts of the company, like self-driving, like maybe some could argue scooters, and micro-mobility. Um, what do you think? Yeah, no, that, that topic of innovation actually is almost very personal as a New Yorker, because nowadays I'm going and hailing taxis once again. We're 12 years into this revolution, and we're right back to where we started. So I do think that's very important that everything is going to be evaluated on unit economic improvements. How do they actually show true profitability, not adjusted EBITDA, actual positive EBITDA going forward? And I do think that that story of innovation is gone. And you're very correct on that, that these companies have shown that this is the business actually delivering rides with this fleet of drivers to people who book it on their phone. That's the entire business. So make it work. And I think investors are definitely demanding that. The multiples have already come down enough to show that they are recognizing that, but there's still a lot of room on the downside if they can't show that they can make money. Mm. Ron, John, stay with us for a moment. We want to get the latest on uh, Elon Musk and Twitter, some of these text exchanges between Musk and others that have been made public and show how the deal came together, as well as some production headlines on Tesla right now. Julia Borston's got that. Hey, Julia. Well, Carl, text exchanges unveiled in court documents show the drama behind the deal. Now, there are hundreds of text exchanges between Musk and other parties that were around the deal. But here are some of the texts that we found most interesting. Now, before Musk offered to buy Twitter, former CEO Jack Dorsey wanted Musk on Twitter's board. 
but the board members didn't. Dorsey texted Musk on March 26, saying, quote, the board is just super risk averse and saw adding you as more risk. Also that day, Dorsey planted the seed of Musk taking over the company, texting him, Twitter started as a protocol. It should have never been a company. That was the original sin. Musk responded, quote, I'd like to help if I'm able to. A little over a week later, Musk announced plans to join Twitter's board, but then of course he pivoted to buy the company. Then after Musk tweeted publicly asking if Twitter was dying, CEO Parag Agarwal texted Musk on April 9th saying, quote, it's my responsibility to tell you that it's not helping me make Twitter better in the current context. Next time we'd speak, I'd like to provide you perspective on the level of internal distraction right now and how it's hurting our ability to do work. Musk replied to that, that he would not join the board, texting, this is a waste of time, and that he planned to take Twitter private. Now, there's another key text in here that could potentially undermine Musk's argument that he didn't know about the bots on the platform. Also on April 9th, he texted Twitter chairman Brett Taylor saying, quote, purging fake users will make numbers look terrible. So restructuring should be done as a private company. Now, by April 14th, Musk had made his offer for $54.20 per share to take Twitter private. So we're going to have to watch and see how all of these texts influence the trial that is set to start on October 17th. John? Uh, Julia, thank you. Stick around. Ranjan, you're still with us as well. Um, what these tweets tell me is that as much as what was happening on Twitter about this deal is a dumpster fire, it was just as much a dumpster fire in the texts. And they seem to reflect the sort of deterioration of the market also over that period of time. I mean, I don't see myself as a boss, people raising their hands to be CEO, volunteering to connect Elon to DeSantis. I mean, but, but then it gets serious, right? As the market comes down in 5420, ha ha, not so funny anymore. Yeah. So first thing, I've realized there's a golden rule that anytime I'm scheduled to be on Tech Check, Elon Musk will break news the day before because this has been universal. <laughs> but these tests, they are incredible. I think every journalist, everyone who works in tech, every investor needs to read them because honestly, they it's, it's almost cathartic to realize that these masters of the universe making these deals are positively human. Seriously, go through and read them. But from an actual pragmatic standpoint, I agree with Julia that the most important text is the text to Brett Taylor, the chairman of the Twitter board, again, recognizing that they want to purge fake accounts. And even more important, he says that the company needs to be taken private because if they purge all the fake accounts, it'll crash user numbers. Now, that's correct. That's absolutely correct. And it's astute. But it's completely recognizing that he is not being misled about fake accounts and never was. So I do think all the gossipy, juicy tidbits aside, this is a very important development in the entire legal case and actually really hurts Musk's legal standing around this. Right. And I have to imagine that you think the price action, we're looking at it now, up 2%. I mean, directionally today, but also, say, over the last month, this points to that idea. Yeah, no, the price action, I think you're seeing it is that, again, we're still well under 54, but 
people are starting to realize that Twitter has leverage here. Again, this entire idea, there's so much public knowledge around this. Musk himself has tweeted publicly about fake accounts for years. So I think finally people are coming to the realization and it's all there in those amazing text messages and the emoji reactions that are written out, which are also hilarious, <laughs> that Musk knew this the entire time. And I mean, it just does not give him the legal standing to absolutely kill the deal and only get away with a billion dollar breakup fee. Um, amazing, I would say, is an understatement. You certainly yes. had to break out the popcorn. Um, it was so interesting, too, Julia, to see the power dynamics between Musk and some other people that we know well in Silicon Valley. Um, some, good, some good exchanges with our friend Jason Calacanis. I want to ask you, though, what does it say about Twitter and Jack Dorsey? I mean, it was so fascinating to see inside of Jack Dorsey's mind. He's kind of hinted at this publicly, that there's more to the story. And we kind of found this out. He said something like Twitter was never meant to be a company. And this was proof that it's kind of Jack versus the board. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. The moment that Jack wasn't CEO anymore, he was regretting or trying to take back all of these decisions he had made. I mean, he not only ran Twitter as a public company, but he founded Twitter and built it into this big business. So um, even though he wasn't CEO when he took the company public, seems like he had a lot of regrets or maybe was resentful of the way the board per perhaps pushed him out. But I mean, to say that Jack Dorsey was throwing Twitter under the bus may be an understatement here. And Ron John, I'm curious what you think of this, but this idea that he was really egging Elon Musk on and really encouraging him to take the company private. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to read these texts. Yeah, that's where the most interesting part to me is that Jack Dorsey appointed Parag Agrawal to be the CEO, yet instantly changed back to, we need to, it was never meant to be a company, it should be a protocol, it can only be run a certain way. And I do fully agree that it was completely inconsistent but also let's remember that Jack Dorsey has made this protocol comment for years very publicly. I think it's just a reminder that the, the inner workings of these deals can be very random. Again, they're just so abundantly human in the way all of these things are approached that I think everyone has to recognize that these multi 10, 40, 50 billion dollar deals are not necessarily run in the most intellectually rigorous or quantitative <laughs> way. Yeah. Raise your hand if you want to pay $40 billion for a protocol. <laughs> that's, that's not a company. Sounds like a great idea. I have a DeFi plan to sell idea. you, John. Ron, John, <laughs> Julia, thank you. Have a good weekend. Ouch. Boiled it down there, John. Um, after the break, Nike is down big this morning. We'll have more on their direct-to-consumer strategy next. Tech Check is just getting started. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
Get a gut check on Nike this morning. As you know, shares fell this, despite posting a beat on the top and the bottom line. That surplus of inventory did weigh on the stock. The company now shifting strategy in an effort to clear that backlog, especially in North America, including by boosting its D2C business, scaling back sales by wholesale partners. Company did report more than $5 billion in direct sales on the quarter. That's up eight year on year. And sales for digital up 16 Sales for Nike's wholesale business increased by 1%. Uh, John, we've kind of been over uh, the uh, action. Also, you know, Forex, that's a $4 billion hit to revenue right there for the fiscal year. It is. And again, I believe that what this signals about the middle class consumer in North America is the most important thing. You know, mm -hmm. a quarter ago, we were talking about Target and Walmart, which is a bit on the lower end, uh, you know, kind of consumer spending capability-wise. Now this is hitting the sweet spot right as Q4 is starting in D. I think a big part of the question is going to be, what about that upper middle class? What about that luxury consumer? Right. Will that consumer continue to spend? Mm -hmm. Because if we get demand shakiness across the entire consumer landscape with inventories sort of burgeoning as they are, mm -hmm. ouch. But I'm not sure how much we got from Nike's quarter on those demand issues. It doesn't feel like that was the issue. It was inventory, of course. Um, those DDC numbers were interesting. Um, direct sales grew by 8% versus that 1% for wholesale. It really tells you about the strength of the brand if you are a long-term bull. Because, you know, John, it makes me think of Peloton on the flip side of this, which started D2C. The brand wasn't strong enough, perhaps, post-pandemic. So now they are going the wholesale route. We've talked about this before. It's kind of a luxury if you can do so and own the user, own all of your data. Yeah, I, I think I would say with CarMax and some other signals that we've gotten on the middle-class consumer, we already see some shakiness there at a time when inventories are high pretty much across the board. So, so that's, that's my concern. We'll see. After the break, the CEO of Wisdom Tree is with us. It's closely watched cloud computing ETF, losing nearly half this year. We will dive into the state of the cloud, plus talk a new fund hitting the market. Stay with us. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. We continue to watch the intraday tape on the NASDAQ on this final day of September and the quarter, uh, putting together some gains of better than 1%. In just a moment, we'll talk with the CEO of Wisdom Tree as they debut a new fund. First, though, a news update with Frank Holland. Hey, Frank. Hey, good morning, Carl. Here's what's happening at this hour. Ukraine is seeking to join NATO. President Zelensky says he submitted an accelerated application after Russia started the process of illegally annexing parts of Ukraine. The White House has made good on promises of new sanctions if Russia tries to annex any of Ukraine. The U.S. is sanctioning more than 1,000 people and businesses connected to the Russian invasion. President Biden says Russia is showing, quote, contempt for peaceful nations everywhere with its phony claim of annexing Ukrainian territory. Meanwhile, in Moscow, Russian President Putin held a big ceremony to sign the annexation treaties. Putin warns he will use, quote, all available means to protect the annexed part of Ukraine. And back here in the U.S., in Florida, state officials say there are reports of at least 21 deaths in areas hit by Hurricane Ian. They say only one of the deaths has been confirmed. 
Rescue crews continue to search damaged areas for survivors. Power has been restored in some areas, but about 2 million customers are still in the dark. That's the very latest. Deirdre, back over to you. Frank, thank you very much. Wisdom Tree unveiling a new ETF enabled by the Ethereum blockchain. That debut coming amid a brutal year for Ether, as well as other funds under their umbrella that we track very closely here at TechCheck, including the WCLD and the WCBR. Let's bring in Wisdom Tree founder and CEO Jonathan Steinberg for a closer look. Jonathan, thanks for being with us. Good morning to you. Let's talk first about this blockchain enabled ETF. It provides a secondary record of the shares on the Ethereum blockchain. Explain to our audience what that means and why investors would need this. So first, it's not an ETF. It shows you how early we are on digital assets that no exchange actually has the license or approvals for tokenized securities yet. So this can only be, be, be bought in Wisdom Tree's wallet, Wisdom Tree Prime, which we're in beta test now, rolling it out nationally in the first quarter. Um, so just a little bit of house cleaning on that. But um, it's very exciting to create um, blockchain-enabled financial services, and our Wisdom Tree Treasury Fund is one of the building blocks that will uh, be a part of the ecosystem as it emerges. Okay, so then my second question, Jonathan, why is it exciting? Why would investors need it? What about the current record isn't working? So, you know, what's interesting when you think about tokenization, most people are trying to tokenize things like private assets that are, so things that don't really have a great experience for investors. We're trying to do tokenize, our standards are ETF, so the, the best of the old rails. Nothing is better, more investor friendly than an ETF. With tokenization, we think we can make it even better. So you'll add things like lower fees, faster settlement, peer-to-peer -peer exchange of value in a safe, secure manner. So Wisdom Tree Prime is being built for saving, investing, and payments. Really, a new relationship with your money is what will emerge. Um, Jonathan, so uh, explain how this potentially shifts Wisdom Tree's business model. WTSY, you say, has no management fees or other ongoing expenses. How do you guys make money, and how does blockchain help you do things more efficiently? So it's great. So one is we will be, though we, you know, we run commercials on CNBC, so we do have a direct-to-consumer, but uh, the wallet will be even more so. So a direct-to-consumer channel, so it's a distribution channel. Um, explicitly, we are trying to, as a public company, diversify our revenue streams. We'll make money on transaction revenue, net interest income. And what's very interesting, you brought it up, I mean, beta on the blockchain, I'm not sure if there will be expense ratios. Certainly, we are pushing a, a business model where there won't be, and that is going to be extraordinarily disruptive to some of the historical asset managers, I believe, in the years to come. You point out this is not about cryptocurrencies themselves. I wonder, right. are there any even secondary effects that you see on the cryptocurrency market here? Because people oftentimes have a hard time separating blockchain technologies from cryptocurrencies themselves. And some people might see these, see this and think, oh, Wisdom Tree is getting in on crypto, which is not what you're doing, but are there any effects you see on Ethereum itself? So first, we do have crypto ETPs in Europe. 
We do offer future-based Bitcoin in the U.S. in some of our broad-based commodity funds. Um, mostly we're doing crypto, the asset class, in the United States through SMAs uh, because of regulatory constraints. One interesting thing with Wisdom Tree Prime, one of the use cases where Bitcoin, Ethereum can sit seamlessly with your equities and your bonds and your commodities. So that's really an innovation that we think will be very constructive. It, it will make it easier for more people. We're trying to mainstream crypto, the mm -hmm. asset class. That's one of the purposes at Wisdom Tree. Right. And Jonathan, that's always kind of been the promise of blockchain technology. But I guess I'm still not fully understanding if that promise hasn't really been fulfilled yet. And we haven't I don't know. I guess I'm asking you, too. Do you think that there's been a use case where blockchain technology has made things better? Why launch this now? Um, how far away do you think that is? Well, as I said, you know, we're in beta test now on Wisdom Tree Prime, which will be our uh, consumer finance mobile app. And it'll be rolled out nationally uh, in the Q1. And it, the infrastructure is blockchain native. And so we will have functionality that some of the um, other mobile apps, uh, neobanks, I'm not sure what category you want to put all this in, um, but they're on the old rails. Having, so, yeah, I do believe it's early days. So Bitcoin yeah. or cryptocurrencies are a use case on the blockchain. One of the things that's been difficult is the regulatory uncertainty. We began this journey at Wisdom Tree four years ago, knowing that we had a strength in getting transparent exposures through the regulators. Today, or, or this fund's approval was a very significant milestone for the company. Okay, and Jonathan, I want to you know talk more broadly about funds amid the market turbulence this year. Hedge funds, money managers, especially the ones we talked to, have been sitting on more cash. They've increased their cash positions. And do you think that investors are starting to wonder why pay two and twenty for that? Are you seeing any shift in that sort of style of money management? Does the argument for ETFs become more compelling in this kind of environment? Uh, for sure. So when investors become less complacent. So in a strong market sell-off, ETFs always take market share. And this year is the same. So doing very well as an industry relative to mutual funds and hedge funds. Uh, Wisdom Tree, we have best-in-class uh, organic flows year-to-date. I think we're about $6.6 net of inflows. We're doing very well in um, domestic fixed income, short duration and floating rate treasuries, as well as value or the shift to value in U.S. equities. Um, but yeah, this is a very strong moment in time for ETFs. Jonathan, I want to go back to the, the last question I asked because I, I don't think I asked it clearly. I wasn't asking about Wisdom Tree's uh, crypto-related funds. I was asking about this WTSY and sort of Though it's Ethereum related, do you see any impacts from this fund itself on crypto assets? Should should uh, people read that through at all? Because I think some people will. I think it's a positive. I think it's showing more use cases on different blockchains. And so, you know, we're going to be both on the Stellar chain and the Ethereum chain. I believe this is a positive for both of them. And it shows what is to come. So we call it responsible DeFi, so which requires compliance and regulation. And if you want to see crypto um, mainstream, 
you're going to need certain uh, things like compliance to really get this to pass the early adopters into the mainstream. So I do think I'm not, not sure if we're very successful with Wisdom Tree Prime. Mm-hmm. I don't think it'll have a very big impact on Ethereum and uh, Stellar over time. Okay. Um, Jonathan, while we have you, I want to get your take on uh, something that Kathy Wood just announced, and that is her venture venture fund. Um, what do you think investors need to be aware of? Someone who does public market ETFs going into the private market space, uh, what are some of the risks there? What do, what do investors need to know here? Well, I mean, she's um, a very strong and passionate investor around disruptive themes. Much of that um, is possible in private markets. So her fund that she's launching will allow her to invest in both private and public securities. Um, You know, I think uh, her style is out of favor at the moment, but, um, uh, you know, she's worthy of a shot and certainly she's a strong business person. And so um, Mm -hmm. we wish her well. Yeah, I guess both you and her in common are, are experimenting with new technologies, new ways of investing. Jonathan, thank you very much. Jonathan Steinberg, Wisdom Tree CEO. Thank you. After the break, retail capitulation. How some retail traders are thinking about Tesla and Apple as those stocks reapproach the June lows. Stay with us. Apple and Tesla making up a large percentage of retail traders' portfolios. So as names fall along with the broader markets, how are those losses impacting retail sentiment? We should note that Apple, one of the few names in the red this morning. Kate Rooney is looking at that. Kate. Indeed, that's right. Good to see you. These are now widely held names and more pain in Apple or Tesla could really add to an already tough year for Main Street investors. And it increases the chances that they throw in the towel, which has some pretty big market implications. According to Vanda Research, Apple now accounts for about 20 percent of retail investors' holdings. It's by far the most widely held stock out there, followed by Tesla at about 13 percent. And Vanda calls these stocks the, quote, last bastion of hope for retail. This group has been relatively resilient and been buying the dip lately. You can see retail buying has been pretty steady since June, but started to drop off on Monday. That slowdown, according to Vanda, is a sign of deteriorating confidence in the market's ability to rebound. This is an important group to watch. Some analysts say retail investors have been the ones cushioning the markets in recent weeks. This chart also from Vanda shows a spark in retail buying right alongside some of the recent recoveries we've seen in the S&P. If this group does decide to sit on the sidelines or sell, it could mean less support for the markets. One potential silver lining, others have pointed out that retail capitulation, as they call it, is often a sign of a bottom. There's another signal that mom-and-pop investors may be losing a little bit of interest in the market, a change in Google searches. So data from uh, DataTrek and Nick Colas over there point this out, and he says that terms related to either Apple, Tesla, the Dow as well, tend to be uh, reliable proxies for retail investor interest. All of those peaked back in March 2020. They're back at pre-pandemic levels after being relatively stable throughout the last year or so. Head over to CNBC.com if you want to read more about that trend. Jeff Cox has a great story about that. So all paths kind of lead back to Apple and the retail investor because institutional interest in Apple has actually been declining this year. Um, But it's so interesting, as we talked about this at the beginning of 2021, when we saw that huge retail boom at the start of the pandemic, um, that we thought maybe there was meme stocks and then the mega caps. 
Are you seeing any evidence that some of these retail investors are not necessarily picking individual names, but moving into ETFs and bonds, more diversifying? Yeah, and money market funds as well. Yeah. That's been a thing. As rates go up, retail investors have gotten a little more defensive and tactical and moved into some of the more traditional investments that we don't really think of. I mean, absolutely not meme stocks, but yeah. safer investments that aren't necessarily the most exciting uh, stock picks, but they're getting more defensive, moving money to higher yielding products and still in equities and not necessarily in cash yet. The cash levels are right. actually pretty steady. So if anything, they seem to be holding out and just not buying the dips because they've gotten burned at this point. But there are so many new retail investors. We've talked about this in the lens of Robinhood, but roughly 25 million new retail accounts just in yeah. two years over the pandemic. So this group is increasingly important for the broader market. That's interesting. Another divergence between perhaps the retail investor and the institution, institution starting to hold more cash as well. Yeah, Kate Rainey, absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. Carl. Uh, D, speaking of mega caps, take a look at Microsoft today. Ray J resuming coverage this morning. Uh, they say they see a collection of sustainable advantages. Tags the stock with a $300 target. We're back in a couple. A couple tech initiation calls to get to this morning. Truist initiating MongoDB at a buy, saying the market expectations for MongoDB underestimate both the strength and durability of their revenue growth potential. Price target there, 300 bucks. Elsewhere, Canaccord initiates CyberArk with a buy and $187 price target. They write the company is a clear industry leader and they view the stock as a long-term winner in the security software market. CyberArk outperforming the NASDAQ this year, although it is still down 13% D in 2022. Which isn't so bad relatively. Up next, Tesla hosting its AI day this evening. More on what to expect when TechCheck returns in just a moment. Tesla hosting its AI day for the second straight year. The company's looking to attract talent as well as show off some new technology. Phil LeBeau has more on what we might expect. Hey, Phil. Hey, Carl. A number of technical updates are likely to come out tonight, not necessarily in terms of a formal update, but in the course of the discussion between Elon Musk, some of his staff members, as well as those who uh, may be uh, there uh, participating in AI day. Specifically, what is the status with the D1 chip? Also, the Dojo supercomputer. And then there's the Optimus robot, the development of that. Where do things stand? Is there a time frame from when we might see a first iteration of the Optimus robot? So as you take a look at Tesla, the thing to keep in mind is that people will be parsing through his statements tonight for anything he might say when it comes to the full self-driving software. Remember, they've been rolling out beta versions, increased versions, and the expectation is that you will hear him probably talk about the expansion there. Does he once again say we'll have it all the way by the end of the year? He may not give that time frame, but he might say we're pushing for it. By the way, he tweeted out yesterday, this event, meaning AI Day, is meant for recruiting AI and robotics engineers, so it will be highly technical. That said, people will be listening closely for any clues that might come up with regard to where the company stands in terms of production. Don't forget, this weekend, we are expecting Tesla to report its Q3 delivery numbers. Usually comes on the second day of the uh, subsequent quarter when they have wrapped up deliveries. So expect that probably on Sunday, though they really they have until Monday. But I would expect that it probably comes out on uh, Sunday. Carl? Sounds like he's going to be treating the crowd like engineers, Phil. Thanks. If you missed part of the show, well, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. Listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. 
One more thing before we go, that is an official leadership change at Meta. It is Sheryl Sandberg's last day after she announced the move in June. Julia Borston is back with us and has more on what's next for Meta as it faces this change. Julia. Well, John, Cheryl Sandberg's departure marks the end of an era for Meta. Here's some video the company gave us from Tuesday. That was her last day in the office at the company's Menlo Park headquarters. And her departure comes at a time when Meta faces its biggest challenges yet. And the stock has lost a quarter of its value since Sandberg announced her departure. The company is now trading at its lowest level since early 2019. And Meta shares are one of the worst performers in the S&P 500 this year, having lost about two-thirds of their value since peaking last September. Now, even before the economic downturn, Meta was facing major challenges, difficulty targeting and measuring ads in the wake of Apple's operating system changes, declining user and ad growth rates in the face of growing competition from TikTok, plus antitrust and regulatory risks. And now, as the company works to pivot to a focus on the metaverse, it's also facing an overall contraction in ad spending, plus foreign exchange headwinds. Yusuf Squally lowering his price target on the stock, saying the company is in the midst of a significant investment cycle with increased spend on new growth pillars, mainly Reels, its short-form video, and the metaverse, saying we believe this provides a cap to EBITDA margins near term. But with the stock's drop, analysts are still largely bullish. 70% of analysts have a buy rating on Meta right now. Carl? Uh, big story this week, Julia. Thanks so much. Uh, guys, everybody have a good weekend. Next week's going to get busy. we got jolts on the way, a couple of ISMs, and obviously payrolls. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.